Son La. Haha, we're here. In the 11FS offices in London for episode 80 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Welcome, institutions and crypto. Today we bring you FOMO is for everyone, democratizing FOMO, good thing for blockchain. What is Bitcoin's value? Well, not very much anymore. And to watch and store your crypto. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm Colin. Yes, Colin, not Simon. While the cats are away, right? I'm utterly honored to be joined today by the wonderful, delightful genius that is Sarah Finan. Yay. Yay! Hi, Colin. <laughs> I was waiting for the crowd cheers. <laughs> <laughs> I cheered. I read the notes. Thank you, Anthony. <laughs> also, I've got <laughs> Tina Baker Taylor. Woohoo! Woohoo! Hiya. David Nickel from R3. Hello, hello. Anthony Macy, Barclays Blockchain DLT lead. Yeah, something like that. I think it's pronounced lead, Colin. Lead, lead, <laughs> lead. He's full of lead. Poisonous. And I think I should probably remember, uh, remind everybody, especially the people sitting around this table, that whatever you say here is not reflective of what your employers employ you to actually do. It's just what you think after I brought you all wine from France. Yeah, wine from France. Wine from France. Wine from France. Which Sarah's like necking, despite being on dry, dry January. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I can see her shaking before. It's a dry white. <laughs> I thought that's what they meant with dry January. Anywho, for the rest of you that have been suffering through all of this and want to hear more about blockchain, because it's much more interesting than our banter about white wine or dry wine or what Anthony just necked, let's get straight on with the news. First one, my absolute favorite security of a commodity is the XRP and its aggression. So there was an interesting thing coming from uh, Crypto Briefing, which quoted uh, Matty Greenspan of eToro, who is a big, big fan of uh, the XRP as we all are. Um, he actually had an interesting remark on, on XRP. He didn't actually think it was a security. Um, he may be a lawyer. I don't know. Um, but his best thing about understanding it was logically a utility token. He thought the SEC could see it otherwise, as do I. Um, he did have uh, a negative view on some aspects of XRP, specifically its community. Hi, XRP army. But they are crypto influencers now, though, aren't they? They are. So? Uh, what are they, number three or four? I uh, can't remember. Ooh, don't slow her down the list, the army. I think it was six or seven. Oh, wrecked. Oops. I think two was their charisma score, wasn't it? <laughs> Does it even count if it's not on their LinkedIn profile? Yeah, really good point. <laughs> uh, true, true, true. Can I ask you guys, what do we think about like communities around cryptocurrencies? Does it actually help with adoption? Because I think that is the point of XRP is institutional adoption. And as we are connecting crypto and institutions, is that a good thing? If it's positive, yes. If it's negative, absolutely not. Can you share a good experience that crypto communities have helped positively influence their token in an institution? A token? Maybe not. But um... What about Zcash? So Zcash has perhaps a smaller community than hmm. one might um, think about when thinking of the XRP army. Um, but Zcash was actually implemented on the Quorum block blockchain, I believe. I think what's interesting about Zcash is that their community actually talks about the benefits of Zcash, dispels myths about Zcash, um, and can explain the proposition about being able to turn on or off anonymity. Um, the XRP army, to me, doesn't typically um, talk about the benefits or the values of XRP as a transfer mechanism for Rapid or whatever we're using it for now or current. Um, they just talk about XRP as an... The standard. The standard. And the moon. <laughs> Isn't the yeah. value number goes up? Well, the XRP army and my um, 
experience also seems to be trying to influence each other. It's a bit of an echo chamber, the XRP army. So, you know, are is this group of people the same group of people that you would send into a meeting with a tier one institution to explain the volatile proposition? I would argue probably not. I'm going to ask Anthony, as a, a tier one institution yeah. representative, what would you do if the XRP how often do you, you welcome you? the XRP army into your offices? Well, on a regular basis, um, you know, I, I quite openly reach out to both yourself and Sarah, who are XRP bag holders. I, I, um, I think we classified her as Monzo Trump, not XRP Trump, right? That, that was that is true. Sorry, yes. you've been doxxed. This is the wrong uh, insider version to talk about Monzo. I think true. Find. They don't do crypto. They don't have tokens. They don't have tokens. Or no. ICO. No. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> they may have illegal securities, however. <laughs> So they're dolphins. Oh, I'm sorry. But anywho, moving moving swiftly along here. In case any lawyers are listening. In case they are. But I, is that what was most interesting about this article? I don't think so. I mean, so take the XRP army out of the equation. Um, we have an analyst from eToro talking about whether or not something is a security. And at the, the same week that this came out, the Blockchain Association also published a blog around what they're calling the Hinman Token Standard, which interprets um, what level of decentralization needs to be uh, involved for something to be not a security. And they've gone back to very exact June 14th, 2018. So if it was as decentralized as Bitcoin or Ethereum as of that date, then potentially it is most likely not a security. And then they go into governance structure and level of functionality, how usable it is, et cetera, et cetera. So, for so I don't think that the eToro analyst has even gone into kind of the nuts and bolts around whether or not something is decentralized. It doesn't it seems like sound he just made like a decision it. based on the XRP army. I think yeah, based on and his also, own bags. but with <laughs> in terms of decentralization, what do they mean? Do they mean issuance or minting of new coins? And so you mentioned the governance structure there, and I, I'm wondering because I think last time we spoke about this, we were still waiting for a little bit of advice on what decentralized decentralization actually means. As decentralized as Bitcoin, um, okay, well. What does that mean? Well, so it means our purchasers investing um, and seeking a return yes. is there. <laughs> is it marketed and sold for a price that reasonably correlates to the market value of no. a good or service in the network? Um, is there a central third party whose efforts are key in determining the factor in the enterprise? Yes, see so, story free. So, you know, there's, there's <laughs> probably uh, 10 of these, 12 of these you know, questions that one asks oneself right. when determining and if it's decentralized. eToro, uh, they list XRP, right? They do. So to abstract away from this a little bit, if you were to work for a company that sold something that might be considered by some regulators to be an illegal security, you probably wouldn't come out and go, yeah, it's definitely that that we've been encouraging people to trade and sell. You'd be more likely to err along the side of, eh, maybe it's more of a utility now, irrespective of who the parties are that are involved. And that applies to all types of crypto tokens and asset exchanges, if you can call it an asset, depending on what it is. That that would be my view. Like, you, you're not going to come out and go, yeah, we did that. That would be kind of insane. And full disclosure here, I do have six XRP, which is worth about a dollar, I think, right now. I have 0. 0.0001 you're XRP. You're yeah, thanks, Colin. Um, <laughs> I've, I've not actually claimed it yet because it seemed like a lot of effort, but I, I, I don't. I don't think you actually can. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> David, what do you what do you think about well, these it's, communities? It, it's interesting that uh, an analyst is talking about uh, the value and then going straight to the XRP army, right? Because the XRP army is is you could say invaluable. Yeah, it's a shill quarter now. <laughs> <laughs> invaluable um, in promoting uh, decentralization, sufficient decentralization. You could say that's a goal rather than the value of of the uh, asset or whatever it is you want to call it. Um, so, no, I think the value of communities in open source development is uh, critically important. It just so happens this one uh, is a little bit negative. And to what you said, Anthony, it'd be great. Uh, open source communities work when they're positive. And not, and not fit for purpose, right? So one would expect that the community would be made of the people that are potential users or evangelists. I don't see how the, the XRP army are not a constituency, as far as I understand it, of tier one financial institutions. Or people struggling with cross-border payments. Correct. Or people technically able to contribute to the open source code. But, yeah. But once again, if we could kind of move away from specific examples and then just talk in general terms. Um, Sarah, you mentioned a great example there of um, earlier of community in Zcash or Zcash, however you want to pronounce it, depending on where you actually live. Um, there are various other open source communities that do a great deal to contribute positively to the space um, and open up conversation and encourage things. And I think on the other side, um, you, you tend to have this more aggressive approach. Um, and it's not just one group that are like this, although um, XRP Army are arguably one of the most notorious. But anyone that's aggressively bullish when it comes to their specific technology, you've kind of got to ask the questions to why. Like, why, why doesn't the technology just speak for itself? Yeah, why can't you say the positives and not slag off all of the other options, for example? You, you mean like Bitcoin maximalists? Any maximalist. Yeah, but I think you, if you're if you're passionate about something and you're going to go big or go home, I don't necessarily have an issue with that. I do. Buy PTK. <laughs> <laughs> Moving straight along to other non-centralized centralized entities, Bitmain <laughs> is to appoint a new CEO and co-founders Wu and Zan to step aside, according to the SCMP sources. Wang Hengchao. I'm sorry. Uh, the current product engineering director will assume the CEO duties as of December. Obviously, this this is a little bit from before today because um, we're already in January. But anyway, um, is Bitmain a central entity in Bitcoin? Do its troubles pose a problem? Obviously, for those that don't know, Bitmain is the largest producer of Bitcoin mining equipment, as well as many other cryptocurrencies. Obviously, not a problem for XRP. Um, does it pose a problem for Bitcoin? Well, I think if we look at the they they their peak in 2017, you know, their mining devices were, you know, selling like hotcakes. Um, they you couldn't get a hold of them. They were being sold for double or triple the retail price on secondary markets. Um, then you know their IPO was a crazy hot topic until it wasn't. And then you know the Hong Kong exchange had you know challenges with listing it and then bitcoin prices kept falling and less people were mining and it just feels like they're kind of in this downward spiral um i think we all kind of know it's not a secret that they're heavily invested in bitcoin cash um bitcoin cash obviously took a bath um so i think that's probably impacted their bottom line and their runway but i'm gonna bang on about this um because I think this is actually the the real challenge here. And I'm going to be unpopular for saying it, but the guy that they seem to have promoted, the article says that he worked as a software engineer from 2010 to 2017 um, and a product manager. And so now he's taken over of CEO of this, you know, 
once was a large company, now laying off 50% of its staff, pulling out of operations in Texas, pulling out of the Netherlands, like really retreating home. And this is the poor chap that they put at the helm. So to me, this just feels very, this is where I'm going to be unpopular, um, very crypto in that if one wants to save a company, um, you know, when are we going to start putting in place sound, solid business practices and leadership teams that know how to run a business or rescue a business? Because I just feel horribly sorry for this guy. I mean, it just seems like, you know, hazard pay. I mean, is he the right guy to turn this around? Yeah, and not to mention with the IPO filings, um, all the numbers are now out in public. So so the scoreboard is up and there are points on the board, so to speak. Um, and, and yeah, with the price of, of Bitcoin right now, um, it's, it's not looking good for the company as a whole. Um, so it is, it is a tough position to be in. Really tough. There were rumors that they were pulling the IPO and that's kind of like why this all happened. Mm. And that, uh, kind of got canned. And as a result, uh, Wu and, and Zan are out and this, this guy's in. I, I've heard rumors about power struggles and, and maybe he's a poor chap. Maybe he's an ascendant poor chap. I don't know. Um, you know, we, we have other parallels in, in modern day politics where somebody's stuck with a shit situation they need to get out of, but they, they walk straight into it. Good luck, Miss May. Um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, it will be interesting to see if this company is able to pull it out. And I think you brought up a lot of really interesting points there of uh, how do we collectively as a community get through crypto winter, quote unquote. Well, I think it's not by not, um, I'm really going to be unpopular here, you know, having some grownups in the room that have been here before, you know, I mean, it's helpful to have some business experience and be able to David you know, up. strategically <laughs> um, reassess or, you know, reevaluate an approach. And I just, I don't, I don't see that there is the the depth of expertise in some of these companies that that potentially could rescue assets if they have the right people on board. But if you're one of those experienced people, you're going to look at the shitstorm and go, no, thank you. And you're going to wait for the shitstorms to pass and you're going to allow someone who's inexperienced to take the fall. Um, I think going back to the other point around centralization, I think this speaks, and you think that was an unpopular statement, wait for this. Um, this idea of true decentralization is a nonsense, and we all know it is. And no matter what network you're looking at, centralization is a spectrum. So this is just one example of the massive centralization in open permissionless networks. It's not to say that there isn't um, you know, a, a large degree of decentralization with some of these networks. That's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, look what happened with ETC. I think that was covered last week, so I won't go into it again. But, you know, just because something is permissionless and open doesn't mean it's completely robust and immutable. You're economically incentivized to give a given outcome until that economic incentive goes the other way. And that's true of any open network. Yeah. Okay. So I, I agree with you here. But in, in this case, if they had somebody who had shrewd business acumen when, and gosh, this is, this segment is just, I'm going to take a bath on this one. Um, at the height of BCH, if you were hedging the profits that you have in the bank today against a future potential downturn, you would have made some choices and you would have, you know, put some away for a rainy day in case the price started to drop. The price, I mean, what goes up must come down and they would be in a different position today because they would have a war chest and they don't because they didn't. So that doesn't have anything to do with decentralization. That just has to do with not managing a business with 
But isn't that just maximalism again? It's it's this kind of insane belief that, you know, you have to be 100% behind your thing. No, no. I mean, I don't don't care. What I'm saying is they didn't manage their portfolio and they didn't hedge or they didn't liquidate or they, they didn't make sure that they had cash on hand for the down period. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Novogratz and he was saying, look, we, we've got enough of the bank to be able to, to hedge or to, to be able to, you know, withstand this bear market. And we commented that potentially they do, or maybe he is a maximalist and, you know, he's committed to this. And so this is the story he's going to stick to. But my guess is that Novogratz probably he does have strategic acumen. He probably is forecasting for a period of time. Um, you know, and, and he's a savvy business person. So if somebody is running the ship and they, you know, have some pragmatism and think, well, you know, what goes up must come down. It's, it's not about being a maximalist. It's about managing a business. Yeah, maybe. I'm looking at a, an article here from um, May 2018. So it reminded me, because I think we must have talked about this on the show back then. Uh, it's talking about Bitmain actually pivoting into ASIC uh, yeah. chips for AI. Yeah. And actually, they're using that as a hedge. It made me think of it when you mentioned about hedging. Yeah. So potentially, they could use those chips and that hardware, repurpose them for a different industry. So they I think do they, do they have the money? I, do they have I the do, money to do it? I do it not know, Tina. They, fire, like, you they know. fired that team in Tel Aviv. <laughs> Did they? Okay. Yeah, they're gone. Yeah. Well, interesting. So I guess there are more news to follow. <laughs> more news to follow. Good luck, Bitmain. From what shit coin to the next? The Federal Reserve blames altcoins for dragging down the Bitcoin price. Not the Federal Reserve, just like to point that out. St. Louis no. Federal Reserve. The St. Louis Federal Reserve. And very specifically, a couple of people that work for the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Pet, keep this up to date on the notes. Come on. This was a headline, but that's no excuse, Pet. Poor journalist. You're the only one here that reads it. Come on. No, no, to be fair to Pet, what was the credible journalistic um, source for this? Uh, that would be Yahoo Finance. Ah, oh, there we go. <laughs> How are Yahoo doing these days? Still limping along, Anthony. <laughs> Doing about as well as altcoins, aren't they? <laughs> so the, the authors of this, who are employees at the Federal Reserve of the city of St. Louis, or whatever the hell that means, concluded that one of the factors dragging down the price of Bitcoin is an ever-expanding supply of alternatives. The article discusses the intrinsic value of Bitcoin. It also says, look out, Bitcoin, the 2000s called, and they want their basic crypto design back. I don't know if they meant $2,000 or if they meant 2000s, 2000s. The year 2000. Maybe. The era of smart contracts mm. is dawning. Whoever does it best will see that most demand, it is probably that simple. Uh, what do we think? I think there are elements, like bare kind of scraps of elements of truth to that. Because if you've got Bitcoin... And Bitcoin is supposed to be this all singing, all dancing. We can use it for absolutely anything. And then you get an altcoin that comes along and says, well, we can do that part. And we can do that part. It's basically banking and the 10,000 cuts thing that people talk about all the time. Um, it's 1,000, actually. But It's 10,000. Is it? We, yeah, we Maybe have 10,000 business lines. Depends on if you're retail or <laughs> enterprise. Depends on how deep those cuts are. Yeah. All right. Elements of truth. Every market Pets needs lurking. competition, I don't like it. right? So new entrants in theory approve upon the Bitcoin use case. So if you look at innovations like the Lightning Network, you know, it, it, it spurns additional innovation. Um, and I think for crypto to grow in a healthy and sustainable way, we need people delivering projects, not hype, right? So if you go back to the altcoin situation, um, do I believe that they dilute liquidity that Bitcoin would enjoy if it was the only game in town? Well, uh, no, I don't. I don't think that's the problem. Um, and I'm going to go back to the drama that I keep banging. I think we're looking at unscrupulous projects that delivered nothing. 
ICO scams, unprofessional conduct, just general malfeasance that um, is probably a bigger contributor to reputational risk and reputational damage of crypto overall. Name names. No. DK unaffected, obviously. <laughs> David, what do you think about all this? The uh, on, on the intrinsic value of Bitcoin. This also relates to the to the last article about um, about Bitmain and whether there's a future in mining as a whole. I mean, the intrinsic value of Bitcoin as a as a payment method, as a unit of account, as a as digital gold. I'm not really sure, um, but I think they're going. I think Bitcoin in general is going to have to figure out, and, and Bitcoin miners are going to have to figure out uh, what else they can use the equipment that they've purchased at great price uh, for. Um, and and is there any intrinsic value in Bitcoin? I think maybe there needs to be a um, what a Carlota Perez moment, a, a bit of a bubble, and then let's use the infrastructure for something else. So uh, creative destruction, if you will, might be a good thing. Long business cycles. Oh, I reckon hacking that cracking cryptographic keys. But uh, but I, I you know the article was are altcoins causing you know the demise of Bitcoin? And I think Bitcoin's you know, causing the demise of Bitcoin. Okay, but I don't think it's altcoins. I'd, I'd actually go the other way, and I'd say, you know, we had a proliferation of shitcoins as the price went through the roof. Maybe shitcoins are good for the price. It's just that we don't have enough coming in. Like, if you're not feeding the Ponzi, <laughs> eventually the Ponzi falls apart, right? Okay, Colin Platt advocating for more shitcoins. <laughs> I'm not advocating. I'm just saying if you want the price to go up. Again, I only have six XRP. <laughs> well, we kind of talked... Go, about the kind of root, what is Bitcoin? What is it useful for the other day? Um, and we were talking about when you actually get back to it as an intrinsic nature, um, I've often referred to it as this recursive system. The reason why Bitcoin works is because it's self-referencing, which means that when you're looking for settlement finality of the asset, it's referencing its own asset. So when you move it from A to B, it's already there, which is unlike other accounting systems where you have to have back-end reconciliation with settlement finality. Now, Getting away from the point of, do you ever have settlement finality within a cryptographically probabilistic system? We'll ignore that. But with Bitcoin itself, it's basically trying to, and in many ways does, replicate a central bank. It's a system of account. You can see the balances that are held there. And the value, being completely unbacked by anything at all, is then predicated on the faith of the system. And what you, I think you've actually seen with this system here is a lot of the faith that went in was based on naivety and stupidity. And now that faith has waned, you've seen a wane in the price as well, because there's no longer that same intrinsic value of the community. And that's what it's predicated on, the economic naivety of the people that are investing within that system. And the whole other so central like, bank or Can there not be optimism and belief? Yeah, same thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> From one okay. nihilist to one optimist. Sarah, Misery please go God. on. <laughs> Can't get Follow that. <laughs> Speaking of optimism, this episode is brought to us by R3. Blockchain is not just for financial services. Tons of industries can reap major benefits. Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Discover the potential benefits of blockchain for your business with R3's Corda platform. R3's Corda platform offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, and consensus. Plus, it includes mission-critical features that every complex business needs. David, can you give us a couple of those benefits? The firewall float, the Corda settler, the token toolkit. Including the world's only blockchain application firewall, which David just named. The Corda platform, blockchain for every business in every industry. Head over to r3.com for more info. All right. 
TheBlockCrypto.com, one of my favorite news sites that I'm totally shilling this week and have no like investment input in, but I do like Larry, uh, brings us the institutional... Yeah. Lawmaster. Yeah. Oh, Lawmaster. Nice. He's yeah. a good guy. He's a good guy. Shout out Lawmaster. Yeah. Shout out Lawmaster. <laughs> <laughs> Institutional investors are just as prone to FOMO as retail, says Circle Trading Executives. FOMO, huh? Fear of missing out. The institutionals, don't we pay them to not have FOMO? Isn't it more? You'd expect them to be a little bit more rational, yeah. Well, we expect them to have strategies, but one of those strategies is to invest in fundamentals, right? Uh, and where are the fundamentals in, in this in this industry? It's kind of difficult sometimes in many asset classes. Um, but also there are strategies uh, like momentum investing, which is what FOMO in a different brand. <laughs> <laughs> so, FOMO. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so mo- momentum investing is an interesting term, isn't it? Basically, I think this is maybe the wrong thing to do. But if I copy everyone else and we all get screwed, then I'm less likely to get fired. So I think it's a different type of FOMO. Or in short, speculating. Well, I don't think it's quite the same as speculating. So I think what you have is there's a, there's a bit of a split. I can't remember the analysis now, and I don't want to pluck figures out of the air, even though we're talking about blockchain. But um, <laughs> if, if you look at investors, there's a, a kind of core group of investors who do about as you'd expect, but not particularly well. They don't really exceed the market. And then you've got a couple that really stand out and excel above the market. I think the key difference between them, if we were to you do- You forgot one group. The ones that just lose money. Agit. Oh, <laughs> it doesn't just lose money, he loses keys. Um, but yeah, what, what you have is this group um, of people. And I think if you really looked at them, it's because they're prepared to take that risk. They're prepared to be contrarian. They're be- prepared to look at the group around them and say, I see everyone else doing this, but I think they're wrong and I'm going to do it. I'm going to take that risk. Whereas for most people, it's probably safer in that nice, comfy corporate investor environment to just do what everyone else did. So when the market takes a dive, you can say, well, who knew? No one knew. But so institutions have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors, right? Which is so. um, But this cuts both ways. So if you get out of crypto completely and you miss the boat, then you have upset investors. If you go too deep without a sophisticated hedging strategy, as, as you were saying, then you upset investors. So I think... Going back to they have a strategy, that, that that's the key thing there. But the fiduciary responsibility really comes back to the customer expectation as well. So customers love volatility on the way up. But, you know, all, all of these customers that may well have wanted exposure to the crypto markets on the way up last year would definitely not be happy with their investments right now when they've dropped by 90%. So it's all very well saying, yes, you know, we should well, have been involved. You're assuming they're all going long. What if they're shorting it? Mm. Well, if they were, but then it's, who knew? Who knew that it was going to drop? Well, down? pretty much everyone knew it was going to drop off a cliff. But I mean, it, it's, it goes back to your point around momentum investing. People get caught up in the hype. They follow it up and then they drag it down as well. I don't think there's, in hindsight, it's very, very easy to look back over investment trends and say, if, but, maybe. The reality is in the situation that just doesn't happen. Um, and I think you can look at previous examples of this. There are all kinds of surges and crashes in investment markets outside of crypto, which show the momentum of the market carrying investors and investment managers up and back down. And it's not always an easy thing to see, I think, when you're clouded in that noise. Yeah. And, and with OTC trading activity, it implies a lack of liquidity or at least less liquidity relative to other other assets. So that makes that... Um, that that riskiness that, that you talked about, uh, the, the amount that you're locked into a particular strategy or a particular call, um, a little bit more costly. I think it's also, I mean, the, the article as a whole is not a bad thing. If, if digital assets are acting more like, like regular financial assets, 
um, with balance sheet relief, transactions, uh, with lots of over-the-counter uh, options, then then I think it's 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 a good thing for the industry as a whole. So, do you think things will change as we get more institutions and less retail? And like, let's go back to the first question we had on the first story: communities. Do they affect this? I mean, where's the FOMO coming from? It's obviously not fund manager to fund manager. As, as Dan said from Circle Trade, uh, they actually institutional investors are subject to FOMO as well. So it is, as you speak of, this momentum investing. So fundamentals, where are the fundamentals? You don't have normally, you know, a company balance sheet with assets and things like that. And, um, but yeah, I mean, to your point, Anthony, they're very often equities, for example, are not traded on fundamentals. But I think crypto is very different. It's a very thinly traded, non-regulated market. And I think for the OTC trading desks, they tend to have higher numbers than the retail. So yes, they might be bound with the constraints of FOMO, just like normal people. But I think I'd just bring it back to what we initially said, that they you, you want investors, institutional investors especially, to not actually react on these kind of emotional plays, these emotional strategies. You want them to have a little bit more rationality than that. Yeah. Just wait for the ETFs. Ooh. Good points all around. If only the government weren't shut down. We might yeah. have an answer on that. Yeah. Gemini uh, ETF might be passed, right, with the SEC shutdown? Our, our government's not shut down. It just seems like they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's your government. My government's still clearly shut down. <laughs> you saw the thing with McDonald's in the White House, right? Oh, your government. I thought you meant the yellow vest thing. Yeah, I thought. Oh, yeah, that government. You mean the Canadian government, Colin? Aren't any governments actually operational right now? It seems they, like Singapore is still they pumping up those ICOs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, Colin, on, on that, uh, this article has come from an Ask Me Anything on Reddit. And I did notice on the Ask Me Anything, they actually said there's no plans to currently open a trading desk in France. Although they I were very quick to point out that <laughs> French investors can trade. They just don't have any heads on the ground, so to speak. Maybe Ooh. heads will roll for that. Mm. Yeah, heads on the ground? That's not what you want to say in France. They've got a history. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's loaded. Yeah, I got some strange <laughs> looks from around the room there. <laughs> Vive la France. <laughs> Moving right along here. Mimble Wimble, history, technology, and the mining industry. Didn't we cover the mining industry? Anyway, Mimble Wimble. Uh, the... Two privacy-oriented uh, cryptocurrencies based on the Mimblewimble protocol. I love saying Mimblewimble. Mimblewimble are pushing out, pushing out, are rolling out in January 2019. Actually, one of them just launched today and one of them a couple of weeks ago in December. Um, both make a number of trade-offs on decision of design. Grin, which is the one that just launched today as we record this, it's a bottom-up fair launch, i.e. there's no ICO. Beam is taking the route of Zcash and other projects, meaning there's an ICO. Um, with a formal foundation structure. Uh, what does this mean? Hopefully this means that we can send money in a new way that is uh, more private because one of the things that we've noticed about blockchains is everything's out in public. Um, can I ask people here, before we get into the technical aspects, because I know everybody loves that part. House elves. Do we really need more privacy in these things? We need more house elves in these things. I think Mimblewemble is the way to go. House elves, wands, Oculus Repairus. Yeah, you don't want people spilling those secrets, do you? No. That's what the Marauders map is all about. Mm, and the invisibility cloak. Absolutely. So what you really need is um, an invisibility cloak protocol, which can then mask your <laughs> transaction flow. Um, For those that aren't following, Mimblewimble's really in, and Grin specifically is really into this whole like Harry Potter thing. Mimblewimble is a Harry Potter spell. Who's Harry Potter? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Anthony. <laughs> 
All right, for those on the other side of the table who are not British by design. <laughs> Actually, you kind of are, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Intelligent design? Not sure. <laughs> um, so I guess the idea in these things is, is um, we try to take public-private key pairs and we try to match up not only where we're sending the money to and from, but actually the amount as well. So you can't see where the money's gone to or from or how much has been sent, which makes it quite difficult to reconstruct a whole blockchain. Is something that lives on top of Bitcoin, as I understand. In the Grin case, lives on top of, I don't know, in the, the Beam case. But they're all supported by Bitcoin Maximus. So I guess we're going to see a new story around why shitcoins are good from Bitcoin Maximus. It's already started. Hey, great. Um, they've got different languages, different funding structures. We talked about all that great stuff. It will be really interesting to see if these succeed or not. Um, I think privacy, although I was flippant about it a minute ago, is something that uh, a lot of people have been very concerned. Um, I know that uh, looking at the enterprise space, they've looked at a lot of different ways you can do this, which aren't necessarily available in the public side. Um, so I'd be, I'd be quite curious to hear, um, do we think this will change things in the enterprise side as we have new technologies that possibly prove themselves? Well, it's a, it's a funny balance, right? If you're going into the enterprise space as um, as a Harry Potter spell with your brand name. Um, so, so we might want to relook at that. But uh, to your question, is there uh, additional demand for, for privacy in these transactions? Yes, of course mm-hmm. there is. For, mm-hmm. for real enterprise buy-in, people don't want their details out in, in the network and they don't want... Uh, no, I, I agree. I think confidentiality is a very important part of uh, transactions for everyone, whether it's in the enterprise space or the public normal people space. Uh, people don't want their transactions out there. Fine, okay. But I think that sometimes that comes with the trade-off of integrity of data. Mm. And that, for me, is the main toss-up. And I think that I'm, I'm really keen on this and, and really... Um, especially keen to follow the news and how about the, the the launch of the networks actually kind of propagate and whether this is a positive thing for Bitcoin. So I think that the enterprise space and the public space do swap and there is a co- cross-pollination, not just of, of people as we've spoken about before, but of ideas too. And I know from Ethereum, and obviously we have quite a lot to do with the Ethereum community, both from an enterprise space and a public space, they are very keen to have that cross-pollination of ideas. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm positive on this. Bulletproofs all the way. I think the the key thing from my perspective is that there's a very, very big difference between privacy and secrecy. And I think the objective of privacy is definitely the way to go. Um, Because there are certain circumstances where secrecy is completely unacceptable. Um, And I I think people have a right to privacy, um, but given certain conditions, there shouldn't necessarily be a right to secrecy. Yeah, that's that's very true. And there are certain use cases as well where data is public, for example, exchange data, and whether it's only public for a certain amount of time. I think with these kind of technological privacy solutions, uh, things like range proofs or something that is only um, confidential for a certain amount of time uh, and being able to offer someone a, a, a the use of a private key to view, such as a regulator or something, to view some transactions. I think we'll see a lot of development in there. And I, I don't necessarily think that solving it now architecturally is is going to be a long-term strategy, personally. No, I think what we're more likely to see is probably Harry, Hermione and Ron solve this in the kind of final 15 minutes of the film. I would like to see that, yeah. yeah. And then 50 points to Gryffindor, house points win, Gryffindor flags, job done. Yeah, Turn sorry over. Death Eaters, but no... No, no Harry today. No Harry for you today. <laughs> All right, stories we didn't have time to cover, unfortunately. Um, the... Crypto exchange Gate.io says that the 100,000 ETC that was stolen during the 51% attack has been returned to it. That's very nice. Um, This $100,000 luxury Swiss crypto watch has been built in crypto wallet. 
Why? On Coindesk.com. Uh, Fortune.com. Can XRP catch on? Moving right along. <laughs> tweet of the week. Tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet. It's the tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. The tweet of the week is from friend of the show, Preston Byrne, and it says, yes. <laughs> Can we specify that this was in reference, actually, like, quoting another tweet from Ryan Selkis that said, did Preston J. Byrne just shill Bitcoin based off of a previous tweet where Preston was talking about libertarians and roads and shit like that, and, like, money being built by private individuals, yeah. he said, yes, Bitcoin. Money for the people, I think, was... Can you correct, actually shill correct Bitcoin? Us if we're is, wrong. is that, a, like, still a thing, or is it just, like... It's still definitely a thing. Can you shill yeah. sterling? Yes. Sure. Where do you anything. draw the line on shill? Like, well, is everything shilling if you just say, like, I like this thing? I think unless you declare your interests, anything positive you say is shilling. So, like, I brought wine today. The more French wine you guys buy, the better the economy in France is. Am I shilling? I am supportive of this motion. I, I love that shilling. Yeah. <laughs> Shill wine, definitely. How about Tanzanian shilling? What? <laughs> what about the British shilling? It's, We're it's bringing weak, it back. We're it? claiming our country back. With sovereignty, we will have shillings. But going back to the tweets... Um, I, I, I genuinely love Preston, and he knows that I love him. I don't know if he listens to this, um, but Preston's rant at the moment seems to be very much towards Ethereum, and I think it, it's kind of weird that suddenly he's coming out supporting Bitcoin um, because he's slated it so much in yeah, the past. But the, the tweet, the original tweet that he was responding yes to, was was about examples where um, I, I believe it was government entities are being replaced by more libertarian yes. organizations. Yeah. Um, so I think the real question was his, his follow-up tweet, which was, is Elon Musk going to fix all the roads in America? Mm. Road, road to Mars. Road to Mars. That'd be a long yeah. road. Make sure you bring along extra charging cables. I don't know. I think you should look into the Mars elevator, actually. Or PDK. Say um, Kim Stanley yeah, Robinson reference. Yeah. Glad you got that, Anthony. Yep. Until you cut the cable. Not good. Right. Well, no, that ends in disaster. <laughs> Speaking of cutting the cable, I'm cutting you two off. <laughs> Blockchain Insider Book Club. I know you thought that you'd had enough of us. The show continues on. However, now you'll get to hear Simon. Thank God. But he has a chat with Mr. Jeremy Miller, Chief of Staff at Consensus. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Miller from Consensus. Jeremy, how are you doing, sir? Very well, sir. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Good to have you back on Blockchain Insider. I'm going to come right out and ask it. What's going on with Consensus right now? Rumors swirling. What's actually happening? What's true? Sure. So Consensus has been a huge laboratory of experimentation uh, for Ethereum and for blockchain in general. Uh, with with, with we And we really feel that what we call Consensus 1.0 has been tremendously successful at catalyzing the ecosystem. And we've managed to have a, a very broad range of stakeholders, ranging from you know the, the crypto side of the Ethereum ecosystem through to central banks and large financial institutions, um, working across public and private chains, working at low-level infrastructure, protocol engineering, development tools, applications in financial services and outside of financial services, working in crypto capital markets, enabling DLT and blockchain technology for traditional capital markets. So a very, very broad range of experiments. Um, some of the, and many of those experiments have gone exceedingly well. Uh, some of those experiments, as many early stage experiments, uh, need to be revisited. Uh, overall, 
Consensus 1.0 has, as Joe has said several times, been in part about showing up, proving we can do something, doing something interesting. Uh, and we see that the market's changing, the market's evolving. And increasingly, we see the market becoming competitive, becoming production ready, uh, scalability, reliability, service provisioning being attributes that are starting to become increasingly the evaluation criteria rather than can you simply do something for me. And so Consensus 2.0 in large amount is about taking the best of Consensus 1.0 and making it production ready. I think that's an interesting point because the market has really shifted. And actually, when we look at the market, there's been a, a real change overall. I think you guys were in a position to really benefit from uh, the permissionless blockchain world, but really understand the private blockchain world as well. Um, the permissionless blockchain world had a set of economics to it that have now changed that create some decisions that I think are kind of timely. But actually having one foot in both is an interesting place to be. How much has the market influenced that and how much is it the changing demand of clients? Because I think there's there's got to be a, a, some from both, right? So I think, it, I think it's generally true for blockchain companies of every size, shape, and format that the cost of capital has changed, mm-hmm. right? Whether you look at venture funding and growth equity funding or whether you look at token launches and other forms of, 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 fi- of funding available in the crypto capital markets, the cost of capital for these companies is changing, which is exactly what you'd expect as they mature. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, it seems like that also gets influenced by what happens in the, some of the, in some of the markets, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and so that, that's not particularly surprising. I think. Uh, my personal view, and I think this is a view that's reflected in a reasonable portion of the consensus strategy, is over time we'll see these markets converge. Um, there isn't a, I, I, I think where, where institutions like financial services institutions, large corporates, or even fintech startups say that things like transaction confidentiality, user identity are critical for them, so they want to run in a more permissioned environment. They also want and will benefit from having a global network where these blockchains can interconnect, right? And currently, we believe that the Ethereum public chain, and especially with the transition to Ethereum 2.0, represents the best available platform and the likely future interconnectivity for private permission chains. So we see we see convergence as the medium-term strategy, I would say, even more than the long-term strategy. That's interesting that it's medium-term more than long, because I would imagine there's certainly a lot of clients you've been working with more on the enterprise side that may have you know, direct deliverables that you know, um, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've been involved with Dubai government. There are many other public, uh, public domain uh, examples of where you guys have been involved in working directly for somebody who has a broader enterprise scale challenge that often is an or rather than an and. But you're saying quite the opposite. In the medium term, that becomes an and, not an or. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think and because uh, in part because it's what we hear from customers. What we hear from customers is we don't we don't want to be necessarily on the public chain today. By the way, we do have clients that want to be on the public networks today. Uh, but but we see it what we are very interested by it and we see it as part of our future strategy. Uh, and, th- and the reason why is the same reason why uh, people want to be on the public internet. They want to be on Amazon Marketplace. They want to be on AWS Marketplace, Azure Marketplace. It's reach, right? Um, it's reach. And so, look, in the early days of the internet, before we had 
SSO, you know, SSL, uh, good firewalls, OAuth, et cetera. People, yeah, people were wary about putting their business processes on the public internet. They wanted to use the internet protocols and the internet technology, browsers and HTTP and HTML, in order to accelerate application development and make it easier to deploy applications at scale. They just were worried about it going out on the public internet. Fast forward, you know, 10 years, 15 years, all those security problems have been solved, right? Mm. And so it puts you in an interesting place now where you've kind of got that mix of uh, kind of an evolving technology. But there's, there's this real sort of like uh, trough of disillusionment in the market. Yeah. We're, we're right in the middle of a bear market. Winter has arrived. There's uh, McKinsey put out a paper basically saying blockchains failed to live up to the hype. Uh, there's a view there that, hey, this was never going to happen anyway. You know, the, the neural Rubinis of the world are sort of uh, crowing. Do you still believe as strongly as you did two years ago that there's a there there, that there's real business value here? Sure. I mean, look, Rabini's in it for his own book, yeah. literally and figuratively. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, it would have been impossible for blockchain to live up to its hype in two or three years, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. The, yeah, because the promise from... From from many publications, I believe also including McKinsey, was it was going to change everything in the world overnight. Um, and 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 look, we we believe it will change everything in the world. Um, you know, the reality is when you have emerging technologies and you experiment on a large set of use cases, you're going to have a high number of failures. You're going to have a high number of failures, and you can fail on different dimensions. You can pick the wrong use case. You can implement the technology incorrectly. You can pick the wrong technology, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and when people don't see overnight success for something that has so much potential, you know, that's what happens. I, I think there's an expression that says typically people are, are short-term overly optimistic and long-term ov- uh, overly pessimistic, yeah. right? That people un- overestimate change in the short term and underestimate change in the long term. So, you know, I think what I would say, though, is we don't, w- why we don't see the, the, the client side of the market uh, slowing down at all. Yeah, if anything, the opposite. And I, and I hear this from yeah. uh, from many of the places, not just consensus. Yeah. I hear it from our sponsor, R3, but I also hear it out of the Hyperledger community. I, yeah. You hear it across the market. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it is interesting that it's almost when the hype has gone, people start sort of nailing down and getting on with work. But that's a helpful meme. Can you put something real and tangible to that? Can you give me an example of like where we were a year ago and where we are now that's like, it tangibly different. Maybe it's identity. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's same. So, so from a commercial perspective, deal size. Mm-hmm. Uh, the average client deal size has probably gone up 5x. Mm-hmm. Now, and that's because some of the production serious use cases have gone past MV- POC into MVP and are starting to move towards production. And so uh, the, 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 the typical size of project has gone up dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um and and that's an indication of something. And I think it's an indication of market maturity. It's interesting that clients are putting money where their mouth is as the market is talking down the pro, uh, the, the technology. It's an, an interesting. I mean, I don't know that I've seen that in the past. With with AI and machine learning, you just see nothing but hype. Um, with mobile, all we saw was this is all amazing. Everything is awesome. Like you didn't see quite the trough that this one has with some of the other big consumer technology plays. But this maybe isn't a consumer technology play after all. So, so I think big data. Data went through a trough of disillusionment in about 09, mm-hmm. um, coinciding with the financial crisis. Um, yeah, fair. You know, fair. Uh, but but I, I do I do you know I, I think you, you one of the things that's happened in blockchain is because we have these 
uh, crypto tokens uh, in, and Bitcoin and ETH, um, a lot of the hype gets caught up in the token, yep. right? And the tokens have been very volatile as a result. Yep. And so, you know, and, and, uh, and it's not to say that the tokens aren't correlated with the technology or in any way, because they are to some degree, but they don't reflect necessarily uh, clients' appetite to try and build productive systems. Indeed, almost they seem to have been... Uh contraindicated with client appetite as timing would have it um there's an irony there but there's also i think something about um links to fundamentals investor protections and all of the maturity that kind of comes with an ecosystem as it's developed because you have something that is at the same time cryptography uh hard you know deep tech engineering you've got something that's game theory economics all of that interwoven and at the cutting edge of all of those disciplines and 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 i would posit that the economic side of it was the bit that was weakest which is why you see major economists starting to to lash out at it, but also that that's probably an area that either A, as a thesis, maybe starts to become of less importance within it, or B, needs to be fixed. Yeah, yeah, or, or C, potentially thought about a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had this thought in my head um, over the weekend, which is just a very different take. Yeah. If, if you think of the Ethereum virtual machine as being able to download these smart contracts from anywhere that have been cryptographically signed so you know exactly what you're getting and then run them in your execution environment, which is one of the properties of the Ethereum virtual machine, uh, that has true implications for how software is distributed right, and monetized. So... Uh, you know, think about how cloud subscriptions are managed, how Microsoft licenses are managed, how, you know, yeah. games are managed on consoles, right? And if you believe that software is eating the world and most products that we consume today will become software-based products over the next 20 years, that compute environment is is transformative for how software is delivered. There is a um, ERC standard for subscription tokens. Sure. I, think, I think it was 998. Um, I'm going to look it up as we speak. But uh, uh, 948, um, my apologies. Um, that whole concept of like, um, so uh, we had uh, Vitalik on the show a few weeks ago, just before Christmas, and, and he talks about uh, cryptography plus plus, this idea yeah. that um, the cryptography where state change, um, where I can tell you something is no longer true uh, versus yeah. just telling you it was true then and it's yeah. no longer true as of now. Sure. Um, th- there's something in that nucleus that's really nice. And I think what you're pointing to is, is this software distribution when I look at the handshake naming service, when I look at the Ethereum naming service, I start looking at stuff that goes really deep into the way the internet itself works. Correct. Deep. Absolutely. Yeah. And so are we on the cusp of some of those technologies, A, being rolled out? So I saw Cloudflare looked at um, Ethereum, I think it was Ethereum yeah. and, and, and HNS as well. And I've started to really get into that, how the very raw infrastructure of the internet works. Then we'll come back to building the businesses over the top of it. And so you kind of have that two-pronged approach for convergence. I, but that's So I want to come back to your point about it being medium term. That still, to me, feels longer term. It feels beyond five years. Do you see evidence to the contrary to that? Or are we in the age of people doing stuff over X25 uh, local networks and trying to kludge in sure. early versions so, of... So, I, 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 so I, I do think there are lessons from how the internet was built and how you had these competing standards that then went, you know, you had TCP IP over the top yeah. and now everything's basically Ethernet everywhere, right? Um, you know, so I think there are parallels. I think there are parallels there. And I think the concept of internetworking as a concept is a, is a parallel that we're going to see play out. Now, but your question on timing... You know, I think 
we are still seeing the implications of the internet play out through society, even now. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and because of the way the internet has evolved, some of those implications are not necessarily positive. We're seeing these massive yeah. you know, data pools that can be, that can be used for the, with, with malintent. Um, but that said, you know, even 40 years on, we're still seeing the implications of the internet rolling out. So I think, I think it's true that the long-term transformative impact um, is 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 going to continue to evolve. Just and we've seen businesses launch on the internet in the last two or three years that weren't possible to be launched before that, which are incredible businesses, right? Yeah. Um, so I think so. In, in part, I agree with you that for this technology to deeply mature, it's years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's true. That said, I think we already can see enough evidence of sophisticated applications and and large-scale use cases being deployed. I mean, Coinbase is a large-scale use case that's built on public blockchain networks. Yeah, fair point. Right? Uh, So let's shift the conversation a little bit, though, to public policy and to um, kind of the the backlash that's happened. Because you've seen in big tech, you were pointing out a moment ago, that big tech hasn't always covered itself in glory, especially in recent years. There are consequences to the rollout of the internet, and you're seeing now public policy reacting to that. But public policy also pushed back on ICOs and many of the things around it. Do you see that there is a a, a brand poisoning that came from the hype that's, that's kind of, A, a challenge for your organization, but B, a challenge for the whole blockchain space, even the DLT space. So, and how do you overcome that? It, it's certainly true that there's been some negative press around ICOs, right? And it would be, it, it just would be to be in d- too much in the bubble uh, to not acknowledge that. That said, the number of regulators, and, I, and you have these conversations too, that believe there's some good in there is also very, very high, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think it's important that we think about regulators as large organizations that are highly risk adverse mm-hmm. because that's their job. I don't mean that in a negative way, right? They have this challenge of uh, consumer protection, maintaining the financial infrastructure and the financial systems, as well as trying to I- encourage innovation, right? Those are those. And by the way, those three missions are not purely aligned, right? Um, and so when we talk to regulators, we tend to find groups of individuals in the regulators that are very pro-blockchain, mm-hmm. right? Because they believe in, you know, the advantage of having non-monopolized decentralized infrastructure. They believe in the cryptographic proofs. They believe in the traceability. They believe in the oversight. They believe in financial transparency. They believe in financial inclusion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and you see, when you see some of the senior people speak, and we've certainly seen this in the U.S., um, Quite, quite a knowledgeable and nuanced response to this, right? Um, you know, if you, especially from Jay Clayton, right, in the SEC. Um, and so, so I, I, I don't think we see it. I, our house view is not negative on this. We think that the regulators are trying to do their job. And inside of most of the major global financial services ma- regulators, there is at least a group of advocacy advocating for this technology. Yeah. And that just needs to get balanced out against the other, both the other parts of the policy and the fact that there are other parts of these organizations that have different missions and mandates, mm-hmm. right? So if you have a part of your organizations whose job it is is to enforce uh, financial crime and fraud, 
right? They are going to have a very, very different view. Yeah, enforcement versus policy is the classic. Right, right. But they sit in the same organization. Yeah. So what does that mean if you're the leader of that organization? It means you have different voices telling you different things about the same topic, and it's your job to balance that out in an appropriate way. I think we'll muddle forward is is the upshot there. Jeremy, we've only got a little bit of time left. Um, We could talk forever on this subject. So as you look into the next couple of years, what's exciting you and what do you think your biggest challenges are? So the continued evolution of consensus and Ethereum, um, which are not, you know, which are correlated but not the same thing, mm-hmm. uh, are, are to me the uh, extremely exciting. Uh, we are, we are starting to see the this this technology get uh, adopted. Maybe not, um, maybe not by everyone everywhere all the time, but certainly both in disruptive, innovative developers and startups. And in the classic enterprise early adopters like financial services, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing the two the two sides of the chasm, so to speak, advancing quite quickly. And I think people don't think of banks as early adopters, but they forget about high frequency trading. They forget about the first to adopt the internet between each other and intranets and private lines. Um, banks almost adopt things too early sometimes. Yeah, internet banking, right? Uh, as uh, Internet banking came about pretty early. I mean, there were many banks in the early 90s that would send you a CD-ROM and give you, let you dial up a modem into their accounts, right? So we're seeing, we're, so we're seeing, so we're seeing that momentum. And so for consensus, what that means is taking the market feedback that we've had over the past two years, looking through our, our portfolio of projects, understanding which projects, you know, uh, trying to get alignment of our project maturity versus market maturity, yeah. looking where the gaps are and evolving all of that with a higher degree of professionalism and intensity. I, I think there's some, obviously some hard moments with that and it's, it's not all going to be easy, but it's probably uh, important that you kind of come through those. How do you see that competitive positioning in the market as well? There are other platforms out there. Do you think that um, the continued maturation of you as an organization places you well for that as well? So, and I think this is where Ethereum 2.0 comes in as well. So I think, so I, I think our organization has been a, has, has attracted, you know, you know and, and you and I are friends with some of these people, the, the, the Alex Batlins, Ed Buds, Julio Fuarez, mm-hmm. I mean, some of the, some of the, some of the top names of blockchain more recently, our investment in Drum G and Tim Grant and, and that team. Um, you know, so uh, as well as all the people that we've had coming out of the major tech companies and McKinsey and what have you. And, and so that's a real long-term competitive advantage for us. And they're attracted to this entrepreneurial environment and culture and this ability to build these highly transformative products and work with these clients that are on the bleeding edge of technology adoption. Um, but we also have the roadmap for Ethereum. And, and this goes to your comment about competitive platforms. Uh, right now, we I personally continue to believe that Ethereum is the closest, is the best candidate for being the global TCP IP network of blockchain. And what I mean by that as being the technology that gets used to do the internetworking. So when the internet, w- w- there were various candidates for the internet. One of them happened to be DARPANET. Mm-hmm. There were other companies and other organizations building other candidates for the internet, right? And and it, and one of them won out as the dominant design. And I think today Ethereum is the closest thing we have to a production-ready dominant design. Uh, and I mean that term dominant design in the in the academic literature of tech of emerging technology. Um, for for what can be that backbone, right? And I think if Ethereum, the Ethereum 2.0 roadmap is becoming so well specified and, and so rapidly developed that we're going to see this quantum leap forward. Now, one of the interesting things is 
uh, and in emerging technology literature that's called reverse salience, is we've now introduced, and I think it's been renamed, Ethereum 1.x, which mm-hmm. has now been broken down into a series of work streams for various forks over the next 12 months, which says, how how do we get a much higher scalability before we have Ethereum 2.0? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think some of the releases we're going to see at the layer 2 in Q1 of this year are going to see rapid jumps in scalability, mm-hmm. right? And so when you compare where Ethereum is today in terms of the produ- the the main net now being in production for as long as it has been, and these roadmaps for scalability, and the reality of what's deployed on Ethereum, how many assets and tokens trade and settle on Ethereum, how many enterprises are adopting Ethereum, and you look at the other technologies, um, there isn't... I don't see another candidate that has the breadth of the global network combined with the enterprise use cases um, that that matches where Ethereum is as a technology. And and it's just moving so, so fast. It will continue to move fast, I'm sure. Uh, Listen, we are flat out of time, Jeremy. Thank you so much for joining us on Blockchain Insider. Thank you. Great to be here. Just remind you all, this podcast is made by 11FS. And they're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services and many, many more services. We obviously do podcasts, we do shilling, and we actually produce things that are quite useful from time to time, including things that are like uh, fancy bank services. Like metal. And, and metal. Metal's cool. Metal's uh, useful. Metal pronounced obviously differently than it's I commodity. pronounce it. commodity. Yeah. Obviously. Um, Want to hear more about Blockchain Insider every single Thursday? Well, subscribe to the button. It's just there. I can't do the same way Simon does, but just fucking subscribe. Um, If you haven't done it already, I'm really questioning why you haven't. And also, while you're there, five stars. If you don't give us five stars, Simon's coming after you. That's actually why he's not here. He's looking for you. (laughs) But nonetheless, reviews are very helpful. We'd love to hear all of your feedback, especially how you hate me and especially how I didn't shill XRP enough. Um, So please find us on Twitter. Sarah, where can people shill you XRP on Twitter? Um. I'll tell you where you can find me in person, actually, Colin. On the 5th and 6th of February, we're holding a hackathon at Barclays Rise. A, that was a sound of a high five from Anthony Macy, who, of course, works for Barclays. Uh, yes, now, so we're doing a hackathon for Ion Art Interoperability Framework. I'll probably tweet about it loads, so follow me and tweet. If you want to follow me, you can follow me at Seronimo, or you can follow at Clearmatics, who will definitely be shilling it, or go to github.com forward slash Clearmatics, or like come and get a job, you know? We're hiring. You're hiring. So if you work currently on Ethereum and possibly are looking for a job, we know. Or if you're a cryptographic researcher. Okay, them too. Anthony? Yeah, don't follow me. I mean, you've been (laughs) listening to the blurb and nonsense coming out of my mouth. If you want to follow me on Twitter now, I'd go to a doctor. I follow you. Exactly. Which doctor? If your benchmark is Colin, go to a doctor. (laughs) All right. TBT. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Tina Taylor or check out GDF at GDF.io. Do you follow Anthony? I I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> don't know. <laughs> I'll check and block you. you oh, thanks. Let's definitely do that. Let's like a lot of effort to go through. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think we're going to do it. We're going to go through the motions of... Attempting to court, being blocked. I'll post something afterward, like you blocked me. God, there's a lot of I'll sexual get the XRP army to Colin will send me a screenshot yeah, and go to see what you. Tina said. And it's yeah. like, no, because she yeah. blocked me. Yeah, and I blocked exactly. her. And- exactly. We'll get Edge involved. <laughs> yeah. It's, let's definitely let's do not it. Welcome let's to crypto. <laughs> Poor Petra, he just wants to go home. So, crypto Poor Twitter, huh? <laughs> David. 
you can follow me at Nickel right now on Twitter or at Inside R three. Um, and we are also hiring great software developers or anyone else interested in enterprise blockchain. Ooh! <laughs> Big thanks to the amazing production team, which we made state very late this evening because we were drunk on wine. This is late. What is wrong with you people? Get a job. Not me. <laughs> At a bank. <laughs> our producers, Petrit and Laura Watkins, and Alex Woodhouse, our editor and poor guy that has to edit all of this yeah. stuff. Hope you enjoy the 15-minute show. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> thanks for listening. I hope Alex deletes all of this. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week if they let us back on. Goodbye.